What happens when a voice in the crowd suddenly breaks with the others and says no to the money, as in we don't want more spending if it means business as usual? What does that look like? What does it sound like? Where would you go from there? These are not lofty rhetorical questions. They're based off something that happened in Washington, D.C. recently. Today, we find out exactly what that was. This is Hard Facts. I'm Robert Johnson. Groups come from all over America to ask Washington, that is, Congress and the administration, for more money. The needs are many and the dollars few, so the fight oftentimes is intense. The federal government plays a key role in so many initiatives across all 50 states, but there aren't many that are greater than the lead Uncle Sam takes when it comes to funding transportation. The lagging condition of our infrastructure is well known. Drive anywhere and it's easy to see and experience failing systems begging for serious investment. Perhaps it's the magnitude of the need that makes one transportation nonprofit's message so unique. Transportation for America has made a break from conventional thinking, and while others are saying more, its leaders have energetically declared no more. What's behind the funding shot heard round the transportation world? We called T4's director Beth Osborne this week. Here's what she told us. Now, it's been a while since there's been talk of a $2 trillion infrastructure investment package, and due to politics, it would appear the idea is dead for now, maybe forever. If I ask you about that, your reaction is? I think that that is true. However, I don't know that it's just about politics that has caused the program to stall. Frankly, since I got to Washington, D.C. in the mid-90s, the only conversation we have had around transportation is about how to put more money into the program and how much money is going through the program. And in my experience, the programs that do a good job of bringing in more money start from a conversation of what they're going to accomplish, explain how much that will cost, and then bring that to the taxpayer to see if they agree that it's worth spending that amount of money on that outcome. In transportation, instead, we go to the taxpayer and we say, give me more of your money. If you give me more of your money, I will spend it and have some great ribbon cuttings and some great press releases. Don't ask me what it will be for or whether you will benefit, but I swear it will be great. And I think that that is a particularly uncompelling proposal, and it has gotten the response that I would have expected. I actually expected, based on your Washington Post column in the spring, that you would say, forget that plan. We don't need it. It could even do more harm than good. That's what I thought you were going to say. I will agree with that. I mean, it was my statement, so I should agree with it. But that is part of, I think, the cynicism around the program and around government. While folks here in D.C. seem to think that the federal program has universal support, I think the federal program is poorly understood by most people and definitely most members of Congress, too. And there's only so many times you can come back to folks and say, our bridges and our roads are crumbling, we need to put more money into the program, then announce more money, and then come back and say, it hasn't been fixed. 
But that's what we continue to do. And the program is not designed towards any outcome. So, so long as we're dumping money into a program with no outcomes committed to or designed to achieve no specific outcomes except for the expenditure of dollars, yeah, I think it's a bad pitch to the taxpayer, and it's a bad idea, period. You want them to turn this thing upside down and focus on some other priorities. What are those? I don't know that they need to focus on other priorities. We could start by focusing on the priorities we claim to believe in within the existing law. We just don't connect the spending to those outcomes. And you see this in transportation all the time. If you go to state departments of transportation or the regional planning organizations that are known as metropolitan planning organizations, you will see these long-term plans with very lofty goals. And they're broad, and they're forward-leaning, and they're really smart. And then you look at the investment package, and it has no connection to that planning at all. And this is what we do repeatedly. We announce these lofty ambitions, but then we don't connect the spending to it, so we don't get those outcomes. And all that does is create cynicism. But frankly, it should create cynicism. I'm surprised that the authorizers of these programs don't say, huh, this isn't working the way it should. I've voted on this a couple of times. Why is it not improving? And instead they say, don't look under the hood, just pour more money into it. We have a reauthorization bill that came out of the Senate right before the August recess. Uh, We hear that there might be something from the House before the end of the year. What are you seeing in the Senate version, and what do you hope for out of the House version? So out of the Senate version, I'm seeing a repeat of the way issues have been handled in the past. The overwhelming bulk of funding will be spent the way it has been for at least the last four years. And we will admit that there are problems with the underlying program, like it's leading to an increase in greenhouse gas emissions, or it's leading to an increase in the number of people killed on our roadways. But the way we will address that is we will continue to spend $40 billion to see more people dying and to increase greenhouse gas emissions, but we'll give you $14 million, or maybe we'll get as high as $40 million to try and fix that. It's like taking a, you know, a bulldozer to dig a hole, but then giving you a spoon to refill it. And so, yes, there are some programs there that are interesting, but they're so pitiful in comparison to the program doing the damage, it's hard to take them seriously that they're trying to really fix those problems. Do you think the House is going to do anything different? Well, I certainly hope so. I really thought that the House hearings were different and interesting and more thought-provoking than I've seen in the past, the way they discuss safety issues and how A lot of the priorities embedded in our program, which came out of an interstate building era, and applying those interstate standards to every road, including local roads, result in inherent safety issues. It's a very different way of talking about things than I've seen in the past. So I I am hopeful that they will look at some real structural change in the program. I think the House is in kind of a tough situation, though, because it's pretty clear at this point that nothing's moving. So you've got two options. One, you can put something out there now, which at least gets the conversation started and shows people where you're headed. 
On the other hand, it provides you a target for those that may not like what you're doing. Or you could hold it till a time when you think it's more likely to move, in which case it doesn't end up being out there as a target for as long. But on the other hand, you haven't created the momentum around what you're trying to do. It's a challenge to figure out which way to go. And I don't know if they've made up their mind or which choice they'll make. There are a lot of organizations in Washington following transportation, a lot of dot orgs doing their work, issuing positions. When you came out with your position saying this big infrastructure package wasn't really something we needed to do at this time for these reasons, the reaction was a little bit of surprise, I think, wasn't it? What did you hear? What did you get from people? Overwhelmingly, it was really positive. Even from groups that might not take the same position themselves, they thought it was good to have someone saying that out there, that it helped the overall conversation. I did hear a lot of really positive reinforcement from groups on the left and the right in the middle. In fact, I've really started much more interesting conversation with groups I haven't had a relationship with in the past about whether or not we can work together based on our pronouncement. So I'm really enthusiastic about that. We've had some good reactions even from some folks on Capitol Hill that are excited to actually talk about the substance of what we should be achieving and not just the money. But there were some people who pushed back. There were some groups that said, this is unrealistic. You can't claim to be in favor of transportation if you're not in favor of funding it. I do find that the groups that said that are in favor of the status quo. And those groups have been quite effective at getting a broad-based group to support more money in order to get that more money. The promise has always been there would be some changes and some reforms that would come with the money. But when it comes time to make those changes or reforms, uh, the big groups that were just looking for more money seem to uh, be missing in that part of the conversation. So I'm not surprised that they don't like our position because we're breaking the deal where we will be utilized to get more money and then ignored for the actual changes and outcomes we're seeking, but we're just not willing to play that game anymore. So often the reauthorization, which is more likely what will come out of all of this, is a re-upping, if you will, of what was going on the last six years, minus maybe some tweaks around the edges, right? Yes. I think that that is what we should expect. And if we see something different, we should be very surprised. I mean, happily surprised, but the basic structure of this program goes back to at least 1991 with IT. And you could argue it goes back to 1982 when President Reagan agreed to raise the gas tax and made a trade with the urban members of the House that one penny of the five pennies would be dedicated to transit. I really can't say that I've seen real structural reform since then. And quite frankly, I can't imagine a program developed in 1982 that is relevant to today. Don't you think it's hard to change because so many people have not only gotten used to it, but they've gotten accustomed to how it works and they just don't want to give up whatever gains they've gotten over the last 20, 30 years? Oh, yeah. You know, anytime there's a change, there's going to be winners and losers. And there's an entrenched industry that has benefited from the current system. Quite frankly, I think that industry could do quite well building different things. Because we're not saying stop building. We're saying build differently. So, for example, while I think that people get really excited about building new infrastructure, 
there's actually more jobs created by maintenance. And we'd like to see the system maintained before we build new things that we can't afford to maintain. And yet there are a lot of folks that just see the shiny new object and they get really enthralled with that. And it's hard to see that if we maintain this vast transportation network that we've created over the last 70 years, that it could create great jobs and support that industry just as well. We'd spend less money on buying right-of-way. But this industry doesn't benefit from buying right-of-way, and that's an enormous part of the cost when you're building something new. So we've got to kind of get them to see that they have a future in a fix-it-first approach and maintaining our existing communities before building a new community on the outskirts. I think we need to convince them that redesigning roadways in a way that's safe for all the people traveling on that roadway is just as good of a project for them as building one that is inherently unsafe for one group of people. They're resistant to these concepts right now, but I honestly, from a perspective of their money-making, don't understand why. They can build a safe road and earn just as much money and make just as many jobs as a dangerous one. I think too often people who are not in the business think maintenance is filling potholes, but then I drive back and forth on the 66 into and out of D.C., They are renewing that corridor, adding some extra lanes. The whole thing's getting rebuilt. That sort of straddles the line between new construction and maintenance, doesn't it? Yes. And and I think you bring up a really good point. There's a lot of different levels of maintenance. And quite frankly, doing basic maintenance before you have to do a whole-scale replacement of something saves money, period. And frankly, keeps people employed on a very regular basis. Waiting until a bridge is completely falling down and replacing it whole cloth is not the affordable way to go. In fact, it's like a parent telling a kid, your teenage kid, I will buy you a new car. I will not help you maintain that car. But if the car ever starts giving you trouble, I'll buy you a new car. That's not a good message. But that's kind of what we do in the federal government. And I think we need to be much more, not just encouraging, but pushing the notion of doing that ongoing maintenance. So there will be some pothole filling. I mean, hopefully, if we do maintenance properly, you'll never get to the pothole stage. But you're right. There are projects that inevitably will get to a point where there will be a whole-scale replacement. There will be a whole-scale redesign. There might be a little bit of expansion there, too. And so there's a lot you can do with the existing infrastructure. We're not taking advantage of our existing investments to the extent that we should. And it's kind of time for this program to push us in that direction. You could argue that we've let the system fall apart to the point where we've got to replace more than we're just fixing, don't you think? I do. There's certainly, especially because we haven't focused on maintenance today, we do have a large section that does need to be completely replaced. Beyond just the pavement condition or the bridge structures, there's so much we could do in the management of the operation of the system. It's interesting. In transit, we spend a lot of time thinking about how the transit system is operated, and it has a line item. On the transportation side, we kind of forget about the cost to truly operate that system. A lot of times, the feds just try to push that off on the locals and the state. States often try to push it down to the locals, too. You'll see states will maintain the road, but they won't maintain the traffic lights, or they won't maintain the lighting, or they won't maintain the sidewalks. And like all of these are part of the costs of that thing. And there's a lot we can do to get more capacity, to get more reliability out of the system if we just 
valued the operations of it and didn't go first to laying new pavement down. But there's nothing in the program that encourages anybody to do that, and there's certainly no reward for doing that. I think we've talked a lot about maintenance. Also in your article and on your website, you talk about two other categories as well, things you'd like to see addressed. One of those is safety. Can you get into that a little bit more? Maybe we touched on that some when we're redesigning old infrastructure to work better today than it did when it was put down 40 years ago. But what else? As we are replacing structures, as we are repaving structures, there is an obvious opportunity to reallocate space on that roadway, to redesign how it works, to address any safety issues. Right now, we put such a priority on moving vehicles quickly that it automatically and naturally creates unsafe environments for everybody. When vehicles are moving quickly through a populated area, they are going past intersections, they are going past driveways, they're interacting with bicyclists and pedestrians and transit users. All of these are conflict points. And those conflict points create a risk at every single point. And if you just envision in your mind your typical suburban arterial roadway, your suburban main road, and think about the dozens and dozens of driveways you'll see just between two signalized intersections and think about those as conflict points, you recognize what an inherently dangerous environment we have created if you're allowing vehicles to go 45, 50 miles per hour, which in many cases we do. At 45, 50 miles per hour, you can't take in all the information. You can't anticipate what other people are going to do as quickly, which means a crash is more likely to happen. And at that speed, a crash is more likely to be harmful to the people in the vehicle and deadly to people outside the vehicle. And so we have to have an honest conversation about this heavy priority we put on moving vehicles quickly. And like I said, the inherent danger it creates for the people moving, but also everybody around them. We came up with a way to make high-speed vehicle traffic safe, and that is called a highway, a limited-access highway, like the interstate where people going in different directions are separated by a large median, where there are no cross streets, there is no development alongside it, and there are no bicyclists and pedestrians. But we've taken that speed priority and we placed it on every roadway and in places where it is inherently dangerous. And then we just don't know where the crashes come from. How does this happen? I'm so confused. It's completely predictable, <laughs> and yet we're surprised. And I'll give you one specific example. There's something called a slip lane, which is considered to be utterly safe. It's those right-hand turns where you don't have to really look. It's kind of a dedicated right-hand turn lane. And you'll notice it's designed for you to be able to make a right-hand turn at a high rate of speed without looking in any real direction. In most of them, there is a crosswalk painted through the middle of it. So just to review the design cues we have given to everybody, we have told the driver, no need to look, no need to slow down as you plow through a crosswalk. I don't understand how people don't look at that and say, how has every city in America not been sued over this? It's all the books. It's completely and utterly safe. We tell pedestrians to go in a bullseye lane. And so much of our roadways are designed that way. We need to unravel that and figure out if safety, if we mean that safety is truly our priority, 
then maybe cars turning right will have to take a few more seconds to stop, look, and turn. Well, it's an interesting conversation to have in terms of a reauthorization bill. Certainly, a lot of those programs get funded through the policy uh, positions that the law takes every six years. But some of those issues could also just be addressed at the local level. They could. We actually work with a lot of those uh, localities. Many of them face trouble when they try to redesign roadways for slower speeds. They get kicked back from their state saying that it's not up to standard, that the standard is to make sure vehicles can move quickly. And there's just a lot of that embedded in the program in design guides and the procedure to scope out a project. Most of the engineers feel like their hands are tied, and the priority is to make sure those vehicles are moving no matter what safety implications happen. The way we design our roadways is based on a vehicle movement standard called level of service, and we build things to make sure that we believe vehicles will move, and then we lay back and wait for a cluster of crashes to happen, and then we may or may not react to it based on how many there are. We do not design a roadway to say, where are the likely crashes and how can we make sure that they don't happen? That's not part of our project development process. You also make an argument for more focus on connectivity. Why did that make your short list? Well, part of it has been our collaboration with a handful of ATOTs and some MTOs, that's called some planning organizations. After years of having engineers say to us, we get what you're talking about. We also want to address the issues you care about. But we don't have a way to engineer to the quality of life issues you all are prioritizing. We know it when we see it, but we're engineers. We have to be able to design a project around numbers. So how do you measure what you're talking about? And we took that to heart. And interestingly, if you go back to the 1950s and 60s, you'll find some academic research on how to measure people's connectivity to jobs and services. And services include everything from school to daycare to medical care. It's all those things you need on a regular person on a daily basis that's not a job-related trick. And what a lot of those academics said was this is the ideal way to measure whether or not the transportation system is working, whether you're connecting people to these things. However, it's a very difficult and laborious process to do this measurement with current technology. So what we've always done is we've said, well, we'll measure two random spots along main roadways, and we'll look at the vehicle flow through there. And if the vehicle flow is smooth, then the trip was probably better. The problem with that is it doesn't include people outside of the vehicle. And also, a lot of what we did to make certain segments of highway work better cut off local streets. Sometimes it just ended local streets. But sometimes it just made people travel kind of around the highway and lengthen their trips and started to push development to be spread out. So these trips were longer in distance to get around the highway, even if the highway trip was smooth. I understand why they did that, because that's what technology dictated. That was the best they had. It was a proxy that was not ideal, but again, it's what they had. But today, we have GIS. We know where the houses are. We know where the jobs are. We know where the retail is and where the schools are. You can get all of this in a GIS overlay. 
and we have congestion data. So we know how long it will take to travel by car between those two locations. And of course, mapping in general, we know where the roadways are, so we know the path to take. We also have the GPFS feed that tells us where transit is available and on what schedule. So we know the transit trip between those two locations. We also have developed a bunch of proxies on bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure and whether or not the infrastructure is friendly to those modes and whether or not people can make that trip on foot or on bike. And because of cloud computing, you don't have to have a supercomputer to quantify all the multitudes of trips that could potentially be taken. You can just do it in the cloud. So with new technology, we can actually measure not whether or not cars are moving quickly, but whether or not people arrive at their destination at all, whether they can get there in a reasonable period of time, and what mode of transportation works well, and get a full understanding of whether or not they truly have access to the things that they need to move up in the world. We've helped uh, to score projects on this basis in Virginia and Hawaii. We're working with the state of Massachusetts. We've worked a little bit with the state of Utah that's trying to do this themselves. We've worked with the state of Washington. There's a lot of interest around this, and we've been so impressed by how this lens of looking at transportation raises not just um, whether or not people have access to the things they need, but whether or not, you know, where access is high, we see household transportation costs are lower. We see VMT is lower. We see greenhouse gas emissions are lower. We see active transportation is higher. There's a lot of added benefits that we see to creating an environment where accessibility is high. And it gets at a lot of what we have just written off as just quality of life things that are not measurable. Well, now they are measurable. And it's inclusive of things like congestion, but it does not let congestion, vehicle congestion, dominate the conversation to the point that we're making everybody outside of a vehicle take a longer trip or not be able to get where they're going at all. And so what we want to do is see USDOT gather this data and make them available to all the transportation agencies and get a baseline. To what extent is the transportation system doing this today and where are the holes and get the Department of Transportation in the habit of measuring this and seeing whether or not their various investments improve this or cause problems. Where we are accustomed to talking about more roads and bridges, it's interesting to hear your focus on some of these other issues that contribute to the system, have the potential to change the system. How would you describe T4's position on the next reauthorization, given everything that we've talked about today? I will start with it's hopeful. It is hopeful that we can push a conversation that is more outcome-based We've worked with a lot of states and localities on ballot initiatives, and we've seen them be much more successful when they start from what they're trying to accomplish. Don't just start by saying, give me your money and don't ask me what for. The feds have tried that. It hasn't worked. If we can get into this conversation about really improving safety, really connecting priorities to the program, really getting through our maintenance backlog, really connecting people to jobs and opportunity, I think... We could see some real change, and and we have had great interactions with some offices. We have a new transportation caucus in the House called the Future of Transportation, and they are not talking about money. They are talking about what any amount of money should be expected to achieve, and that is very exciting. So we're ever hopeful, but if Congress is just going to spit out the same reauthorization that they have since I got here 20 years ago, that has not really made substantial progress on the maintenance backlog, that has resulted in more people dying on our roadways every year, 
and that does not give people, particularly lower income people, connections to jobs and services, then not only do I think more money is uncalled for, I have a question about whether the existing money is called for. Sounds like we'll have a little bit more time to debate this, so uh, your chances of getting some of this in the in the bill are uh, are not over yet. That's correct. We definitely have another bite at this apple. It's not likely to happen this year. So we're using this time to really foment the conversation, and we're going to keep pushing the issues and seeing what answers we can get out of the various leaders and really to engage some of the non-committee members on it, too. This is a trust-funded program which means they don't argue about it every year in the budget. So a lot of members just are not familiar with what it does or what is possible. So let's get more people talking about that. And I think as we get more members of Congress excited to really talk about what we can do, it's likely we'll also get more of their constituents excited about what we can do. Well, change is in the wind around this town. So you might be catching that breeze at just the right time. You never know. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't count us out. <laughs> Find a link to T4's position on transportation funding in the show notes for this episode. Next week, we'll have the latest from Washington on the issues industry follows, transportation funding, resiliency, and climate from voices you will not hear anywhere else. That's Wednesday, November 6th on Hard Facts a podcast production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Robert Johnson. I'll see you then.